Sir Harry Vincent Lloyd-Jones. Probably not a name you've ever heard of. He was a, um, he was a British lawyer throughout the 1940s, 1950s. In 1960, he was appointed as a high court judge and he was assigned to the probate, divorce, and admiralty division in the High Court of Justice in England. But Sir Harry Vincent Lloyd-Jones has a famous brother and an even more famous friend. His brother, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, he said this about his brother Vincent's famous friend. Just listen to this quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There are certain tendencies in this direction, even in our own day and generation. I had already purposed to say this before I read in the press last weekend or heard, about, heard on the wireless of the passing of Professor C.S. Lewis. I regret to say this, that was more or less his teaching also. He believed that you could reason yourself into the Christian faith. The first book he ever published was a book called The Pilgrim's Regress. And the whole point of that book is to say that by clear thinking, you can think yourself from a rationalist or atheistical position into the Christian position. And he actually at one time founded in Oxford what he called the Socratic Club which used to meet on Monday nights, in which he used to try to show people how to reason themselves into Christianity. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. You cannot do it merely by a process of intellectual reasoning. So the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's commonly known as the doctor, he had a serious theological problem with the teachings of his brother's friend, C.S. Lewis. I say that because C.S. Lewis has become sort of, the, sort of the 20th century Protestant patron saint of Christian thinking and intellectualism and good children's stories, and they're good. And don't get me wrong, he, he wrote some very helpful and he wrote some really good things. But don't throw out, so, so we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to Lewis, but the doctor... He also wrote this one line after Lewis died, and C.S. Lewis incidentally died on the exact same day that JFK died, John F. Kennedy, so it wasn't really in the news because JFK was in the news instead. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about Lewis. He said, C.S. Lewis had a defective view of salvation and was an opponent of the substitutionary and penal view of the atonement. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's okay, at least for today. So today, just kind of take my word for it that C.S. Lewis believed wrong things about the forgiveness of sins. But as I said, Lewis wrote some really helpful things, especially in the realm of apologetics, of defending the faith. And one of those great paragraphs that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote that just kind of resonates with me, I'm going to reference another a little bit later in the sermon. But this is this great paragraph that he wrote. It's from a collection of essays that was compiled after he died, put together. And and this particular essay is entitled, On the Incarnation. And so Lewis, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart 
sings unbidden while they're working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. That's my new favorite quote by C.S. Lewis. The heart sings unbidden while you're working your way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in your teeth and a pencil in your hand. But the real quote I wanted to read this morning, the one that actually pertains to today's scripture passage, is from a, this collection of essays called God in the Dock. And in England, in the dock means like on the witness stand or, or God on trial, so to speak. So God in the Dock. And he says this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He's the judge, and God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge, this modern man. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You've known this to be true. Man has put himself either on the judge's bench or at least in the jury box. And he will weigh the evidence. He will work and listen sometimes to determine whether or not God is a God to be worshipped. Or even a God to be admired in some small way. Essentially, modern man is, is calling God to give an account. Well, here in John's Gospel, as we pick up our study this morning, for several chapters now, as we've worked our way through these first seven, and we're middle, in the middle of chapter 8, or kind of towards the beginning of chapter 8, as we've worked our way through here, um, the Pharisees, the Jews, as John will call them, the leaders of the Jewish people, they have been calling Jesus to give an account they have been putting him in the dock. In fact, we could go all the way back to chapter 2, when Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem, made a whip of cords, and, and drove the money changers out of the temple. And then verse 18, the Jews approach him and said to him, what sign do you do for, uh, for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And from that moment on, when they questioned his actions in the temple, as far as the Jews were concerned, as far as the, the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned, Jesus was at the defense table. He was constantly needing to defend his claims every time they would come to him with accusations. But at this point, beginning here, really in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus goes on the offense. Now, we've looked at, we looked at verse 12 a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and the weather was also not the best that Sunday, too. So you may not have been here. You may have missed it. If you did, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on the church website or on iTunes. It's all out there. You can listen. Um, it will help, I think, today's sermon make a little bit more sense. But let's see how it goes. Well, let's read this passage today. I'm going to read John 8, verses 12 through 20. And we're really going to pick it up in verse 13. So John chapter 8, verse 12 says this again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, 
My testimony is true, for I know where I've come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's just stop and pray again. Lord, give us what we need this morning. Help us to understand these things, what your word would say to us, that we might be transformed for your glory. Amen. So as I've said over the past couple of weeks, um, Jesus has moved from the defense table to the judge's bench, and then now we find him kind of in the plaintiff's seat here. So he laid out his opening statement in this courtroom drama. His opening statement is really verse 12. And in these opening remarks, he he literally makes the claim, the light of the world am I. And his point is not, as we said a couple of weeks ago, his point is not to emphasize the light itself, or really even what he means by the light. Instead, he's emphasizing that that he is the light that the world needs. He is the light by which a person escapes darkness. And so his opening statement there in verse 12, I am the light of the world, is all about the person of Jesus. It's about I am. This explains why in the Pharisees' reaction in verse 13, the issue is not about light and darkness. They don't ask him to define his terms. They don't, they don't ask, well, what do you mean by darkness? What's that supposed to mean? Their reaction in verse 13 is all about his, his claim to be the light. It's about his, his claims, all of his claims, really. His claim to be, I am. Well, there is a reason um, that John's gospel is so often the first book of the Bible that that we recommend as a place to start reading. So if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity or to the church, we will will often recommend you start by reading the gospel according to John as as a place to begin your Bible reading. Even though it is in Let's face it and be honest, in many places it's, it's, difficult. it's a difficult book to understand. Sometimes it's hard to understand. But the reason that we so often point to, to John as a place to begin is because the gospel according to John is primarily a book of evangelism. In fact, some have called the apostle John, John the Evangelist. And by evangelism, we really mean bearing witness, testifying to the good news to the good news of Jesus Christ, bearing witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so let me just kind of remind you that his purpose in writing, John's purpose in in writing this entire book, he he says at the end in, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, 
He says, now, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And because of this, because this book is, is given as a, as a witness, as a testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ, John also gives us a, a look often, and he does so right here, at the heart that is steeped in steadfast unbelief. This is steadfast unbelief in verse 13. Just look at this verse one more time. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Is not true. Let those words, those words that are spoken face to face with Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, about what he has said, let them sink in. Your testimony is not true. Up until this point here in verse 13, the Pharisees have, they have plotted against Jesus in secret. They've spoken about him amongst themselves. Chapter 6 verse 41 tells us that they've, they've grumbled about him. At the beginning of, of chapter 7, back at the beginning of the Feast of Booths, this, this great annual Jewish feast, they're apparently, apparently they're asking around in, in the city of Jerusalem for him. They're, they're looking for him. But this is the first time that they have looked him in the eye and called him a liar. Your testimony is not true, they said. That's what steadfast unbelief looks like. Stop telling me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about it anymore. It's not true. But, and this is an important distinction because this is what people get angry about, the Pharisees are not, a, they're not offended that Jesus claims to be able to bring light to people's lives. They're not offended that he's able to bring them a little comfort. They're not offended that Jesus is just a good teacher. That he's able to make people feel good about themselves. They're offended and the world is offended when we say that Jesus, not, not that when we say he's a light, but one of many lights. They're offended when we say that he is the light. That's what's happening here. They are offended because he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. See, absolute truth is anathema in our world. The world doesn't want to hear it. The world wants it out of here. They will stay in steadfast unbelief in the name of relativism or in the name of inclusivism or whatever works for you is good for you, but don't you dare proclaim an exclusive religion. But the Pharisees are not postmodernists. They're legalists. And they are men who are very well acquainted with the Old Testament. And so, as I've said for many weeks now, as we've worked through this, Jesus continues to, and in these interactions with them, he continues to point back to the Exodus. He continues to point back to the, to the scriptures and the imagery that is familiar to them. And just as God miraculously fed the people in the Sinai wilderness, 
Jesus miraculously fed people from five loaves and, and two fishes a couple of chapters ago. Just as God sent manna from heaven, so he also sent his son to be the bread of life. And then he declares himself here to be the light of the world, leading his people out of darkness. And nothing illustrates this better, really, what it really is, than verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. The woman caught in the act of adultery, caught in darkness. If she would repent and believe, she would be led out of the darkness of her besetting sin to the light of Jesus Christ. So in all of these ways, throughout these chapters, Jesus has revealed himself to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah. But these leaders of God's people here, verse 13, in response to his opening statement, I am the light of the world, they stand up and yell, Objection! These are the people who had put themselves in charge in order to to keep the Jewish beliefs and and faith and and practices alive here in this modern world of the first century under the Roman law, Roman rule. And they reject his claim, and they do so on legal technicalities. This This is steadfast unbelief. This is the person who who continues to object to the gospel no matter what evidence is brought forward. If if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you have witnessed or, or testified about the good news of Jesus Christ to your friends and your family or co-workers or classmates, you've probably interacted with someone who continues to reject the gospel and, and often they do so in an irrational, we think, manner, Right? That's crazy. Why wouldn't you believe? They may be able to believe in a literal six-day creation. In fact, most of the world did until recently. They may be able to believe in a God who created ex nihilo, out of nothing. They may be able to, to believe that the Ten Commandments should be adhered to, all ten, which is ironic, actually. They may be able to believe that Jesus performed miracles and was even an incredibly persuasive teacher. That the, that the Messiah will come one day to judge the quick and the dead and, and they still reject him. These people here in John chapter 8, they believed all those things. They believed in God's word, the Old Testament. They saw with their own eyes Jesus. They heard his teaching, yet they did not believe in him. And here they were, In verse 13, calling him a liar. I am the light of the world. Objection. And in keeping with this kind of courtroom motif that we see really throughout John's gospel, they appeal to the law. So they said this, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, on this point... Uh, they are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says this. So this is the actual law on the books, okay? Deuteronomy 19, 15 says this. A single witness shall not suffice against, any, against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's what they're referring to. They're going back to the law. 
So they're objecting here on the grounds that, that since Jesus is not following established legal procedures, then his testimony could not be believed. So you have this courtroom drama in your mind as we read through this. This kind of episode of Law and Order, or Perry Mason, the whatever. The older Perry Mason where he had a beard and was cool. This is how old I am. But there are three problems with their objection. Three legal problems here. And the first is this. Just because someone does not have a witness doesn't mean that they are necessarily a liar, which is what they are accusing him of right there. So if your alibi is that during the time of the crime, you were home alone, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're guilty of committing or lying about committing the crime. It just, it just means that no one can corroborate your alibi. Now we're going to come back to this one in a moment. But secondly... The, the legal requirement from Deuteronomy for two or three witnesses pertains to criminal cases. And then generally, only those criminal cases in which the accused might face the death penalty. Now, you know, because of what happens to Jesus later, that that's what they're building towards. But that's not the law here. Deuteronomy chapter 17 talks about this and about the death penalty. This is not a criminal case. In fact, this isn't even a formal legal hearing in which Jesus, uh, he had faced these before, these formal legal hearings before the Sanhedrin. Uh, we know of that from uh, Acts when the, when the apostles faced the Sanhedrin, the court. And Jesus had faced these men before. And he would face them again in formal legal hearings. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 16, alludes to this. When John writes, this is why the Jews were persecuting or seeking prosecution of Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were looking for ways to arrest him and to try him. And then ultimately to put him to death. But here, Jesus goes on, and even there in John chapter 5, Jesus goes on to defend himself using this same kind of formal legal language. But if the Jews really right here, if they really wanted to follow those formal legal requirements of the law, they would have tested his words and his actions against the legal standards for a prophet. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, just, just listen to this. You don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 13, in the law, it reads this. Deuteronomy 13, 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now listen to Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22. As we look at the legal standards for a prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 21 says, And if you say in your heart, How may we know that the word uh, that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him, the law says. So according to God's law, there are two tests for prophets. Did the prophecy come to pass? And does he call you to worship God alone? Jesus clearly met those two requirements. The things that he said came to pass, and he called them to worship God alone. But, but then the third problem with their objection here, um, you're bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. The third problem with that goes back to the first problem that I mentioned, and it's this. The Pharisees have actually heard um, the testimony of multiple witnesses. They've already heard multiple witnesses testifying on Jesus' behalf. There's John the Baptist, for example, who specifically testified on Jesus' behalf back in John chapter 1. I'm not going to take the time to look at it right now, but in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 36, that's his legal testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. You can read about that. I'll assign that to you for this afternoon. It's a nice afternoon to read Scripture, as they all are. Then there was Nicodemus, who all but admitted that the, the Jews, the leaders of the Jewish people, knew that Jesus met the requirements of a, of a prophet. When, when, when Nicodemus admitted to Jesus' face in, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's two witnesses. John the Baptist, and even Nicodemus, one of their own leaders. The third might be the lame man that Jesus healed at the pool back in chapter 5. Or how about the thousands who were fed by him and then followed him back and forth across the Sea of Galilee to see more signs and be fed by him. They could testify to the signs that he did. How about the twelve? who were following him. John himself will testify at the very beginning of his book, of this book here. He will say, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John's testimony. He's testifying to, these, to this fact. But these testimonies didn't really matter to the Pharisees because they are steeped in steadfast unbelief. This is a point that Jesus acknowledges even as he begins to answer their objection. And really what he does here is he asserts ultimate legal authority. So the first response is their steadfast unbelief, and now we see the ultimate legal authority. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, I have probably, hopefully, painted a, a picture in your minds of, of this scene as a, as a trial in an American courtroom uh, with an impartial judge, a jury of peers. And if that were the case, then Jesus' rebuttal would have seemed strange. But we have the advantage of not reading these verses in a vacuum. Um, of not reading these verses as isolated from the rest of Scripture, but rather in light of all that Jesus has said and done in John's Gospel at this point, including John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, in an American courtroom, there would be a, there would be a judge who would listen to their objection. You're not telling the truth. They would listen to the objection of the, of the Pharisees. He would listen to the rebuttal, and he would issue a ruling as the lawyers talk. You've seen this played out. But Jesus is still the judge. And he answers their objection by, by simply being the Son of God. He's the Son of God. That's how he answers their objection. Because he is, I am. Verse 12, his claims are, we could say, his claims are self-validating. He has the authority as God to bear witness about himself. Remember, he says this as a response to their disbelief that he is the light of the world. Matthew Henry puts it this way in his commentary. He says, he is the light of the world and it is the property of light to be self-evidencing. So either the lights are on or they're not. You don't need corroborating evidence to tell whether or not the lights are on in here. You don't need to to see if there's a shadow. You don't need to climb up there somehow. Climb up there with a tester, a circuit tester, and see if there's current flowing to the fixture. We can tell the lights are on. Jesus' first response in verse 14 is that he does not subject himself to worldly standards of judgment. It's true simply because he said it. He is the light of the world because he says so. But look at the contrast in his statement. He says, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus has already said back in chapter 7, Verses 28 and 29, he he has said to them, I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And here, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, sent from the Father to return to the Father's side by way of the cross. But you've rejected this. You don't believe this. And then in verse 15, he lays out another contrast when he says this, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he never judges anyone ever. We know that not to be the case. We know that that's not true. He's just acted as a judge in the opening of this chapter. They even asked him to. Again, this is a contrast 
They're looking at his flesh. They're looking at his human form. And they're issuing a judgment that he is mere man and a liar at that. But his judgment is as the son sent from the father. And his judgment is true simply because of who he is. But not just because of who he is. But also because of who the father who sent him is. We could say it this way. Jesus is the Son of God because He claims to be the Son of God and His claims are true. But not just because He claims to be the Son of God, but also because He was sent by God the Father. This is how Jesus will be able to make the claim in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is another thing that C.S. Lewis does really well, this this liar, lunatic, or Lord apologetic. Either Jesus is a liar, right here. Either Jesus is a, is a liar, which is exactly what they're accusing him of here. Or he's a lunatic. He's crazy. But if that were the case, then we would have to deal with all of the signs and wonders that thousands of people have witnessed. We would have to deal with them. We would have to explain them away. But... But people had followed him all the way across the Sea of Galilee. In fact, people had crisscrossed the Sea of Galilee to try and find him because they've seen and heard his signs. So if he's, if he's crazy, if he's a lunatic, then we have, to, we have to deal with the signs and wonders. And if he is Lord, if he is who he says he is, then he is the ultimate legal authority. Look at how many times he uses the word true in these verses. Just look through there over and over and over again. My testimony is true. It is true. It is true. But beyond that, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to deal honestly with rejection. See, look at these things that we assume that a, that a reasonable person would conclude that Jesus is Lord. We have to look at these things. We have to conclude a reasonable, rational, sane person would look at the evidence here and have to conclude that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he says he is. And if he is Lord, then we must submit to him. That's the only response. But as the doctor said... You can't reason yourself into Christianity. God must give you a new heart. Repentance is a gift from God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not of your own intellectual reasoning. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of your own thinking, so that no one may boast. Intellectually speaking, the Pharisees were, were some of the, they were some of the cream of the crop of Israel. These were learned, reasonable men who stood there calling Jesus Christ a liar. But he isn't done with them. And in fact, he, he, still, he still has a legal ace up his sleeve. And so he issues his own legal challenge here next. This is Jesus' legal challenge to them in verses 17 and 18. He says, In your law... It is written that the testimony of two people is true. Now, clearly, he is referring back to what they said in verse 13. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, 
and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They demanded two witnesses. He responds with the Father and the Son. Notice that he says, your law, verse 17, in your law. This is where Jesus uses their own their own misunderstanding, their own misinterpretation of God's law against them. This isn't a criminal case. This isn't a criminal case. But if you want two witnesses, how about the Most High God and His chosen Messiah? You want two witnesses? How about God the Father and God the Son? Is that good enough for you? Well, it's not. Even by their own flawed judicial argument, Jesus still proves his testimony is true. Who can argue here with two members of the Trinitarian Godhead as witnesses for him? And just as kind of an aside, he said two witnesses in verse 17. But I read from the law in Deuteronomy 13 that the the law actually requires two or three witnesses. See, later... The Father and the Son will provide a third witness. Listen to what uh, Jesus says in John 15, just verses 26 and 27. Listen to how this is worded. John 15, 26 and 27 says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is that third witness. And then there's a fourth witness, the the you also. And and he's talking specifically to his disciples there. He will say again in Acts 1.8, And you will be my witnesses. That's legal language. We're going to fulfill the law. We're going to fulfill the requirements beyond The law requires two or three. Well, the first three will be the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. From that point on, it will be the disciples. From that point on, it will spread to the ends of the earth. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You will be my witnesses. So at this point here, the Father is a witness. The Son is a witness. The Spirit will be a witness later. But let me just read for you Jesus' recorded testimony. This is all over the place in the Bible. This is is the Son's witness regarding Himself. These are three, I'm going to read you, three explicit statements that Jesus has made just so far in John's Gospel regarding His own witnessing for Himself. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We could say that that John testifies on Jesus' behalf when he writes this right in the beginning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Maybe we could put that testimony in the category of God the Father's testimony. John just writes it down. 
Certainly the Father is, is testifying to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims throughout, through Jesus' own works. No one can do these things unless God the Father was with him, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, had said. And if the Bible is the Word of God, which the Pharisees believed, then we must see the Father testifying for the Son even in His Word. John 5.46 references the Old Testament, specifically the writings of Moses. He says, For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. God's Word, Jesus says right there, in summary form, God's Word testifies about me. If you believe what Moses wrote, if you believe what God gave Moses to write down, you'd believe me because it's about me. John will later write in his first epistle, in 1 John 5, verse 9, he says, that If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. John's testimony. And so the Jews were obligated to believe because Jesus has stood up now to every legal challenge. He has stood up to every scriptural challenge. He's even stood up to every natural challenge. Think of the signs and wonders. But of course they refuse to believe because here again they're steeped in steadfast unbelief. So if you're doing an outline, this is steadfast unbelief part two. It's verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That statement, where is your father, that shows the hardness of their hearts. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Even though it sounds like, a, like such a basic question, where's your father? It's actually mockery and scorn. Where is your father? Oh, oh, your dad will testify? Where is your dad? This is dangerous ground. The father could have very easily shown himself to them. But, and back to Exodus again here, as the father said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for, no man, for man shall not see me and live. If they saw the father right then, would have been the last thing they saw. You almost read this statement, where is your father? You almost read it with a gasp. It almost takes our breath away if we really understand what they're saying. I, I can't believe that they say this. Where is your father? These people have, they have the book of Job, for example. They have God's response to all of Job's questions. When, when God says to Job, after chapter upon chapter upon chapter of question and discussion, of questioning God's goodness and trying to reason into an understanding of God's will, God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Question one. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And it goes on from there for chapters. He just lays out question 
after question after question. And all Job can do is put his hand over his mouth, thank God he was not wiped off the face of the earth, and promise silence. Where is your father? Jesus responds to them instead of in judgment. There's judgment here. But he responds with this simple statement when he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. It's condemning. That's a condemning statement. But it's patient. Because his time has not yet come. John will say in verse 20, when he implies that all of this evidence will eventually demand a verdict, he he will say, his time will come, and their time will come. But for now, he just says, you don't know me, and you don't know my Father. And then we see here, John lays out that there is evidence that demands a verdict. Look at verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The Jews could harden their hearts toward him, but they couldn't stop him. And when the hour does come, the evidence will only be stronger. This is the evidence that Paul will appeal to in his preaching of the gospel. Paul will appeal to the evidence of the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, he, he says to them, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the message that he preached to them. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He goes on to offer proof of that. Witnesses who will testify to the truthfulness of those claims. Go talk to Peter. Go talk to the Twelve. Go talk to 500 brothers at one time that Jesus appealed to. And last of all, you can come and talk to me. I will testify that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the core message of Christianity. This is the evidence that demands a verdict that his hour will come, that he will die, in fact, for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. And on the third day, he had victory over sin and death and rose from the dead. But God is not in the dock. Jesus is not really the one on trial. At the moment, he is the judge who is patiently and graciously allowing us to feel like we're sitting in the jury box. The verdict that we must issue, the only verdict that there can be, is repentance and worship. That's what their verdict should have been. Instead, they said, your testimony is not true. Where is your father? But we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and the glory and majesty of our father who loved us and sent his son to die for these types of sins. To die for our sin. The verdict that we must come to as we 
Look at the life of Jesus Christ and at his te- as his teaching is repentance and worship. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for your patience, for your long suffering toward us. Lord, we thank you that at that moment you could have judged all humanity. When the When the leaders of your people said, where is your father? You could have revealed yourself to all humanity in that moment in a way that would wipe them off the face of the earth in an act of total judgment. But in your grace and your mercy, instead, Jesus went to the cross to take that penalty, to to bear your wrath poured out, to face the punishment that these Pharisees deserved and that we deserve when we don't believe your promises, when we don't believe you. When we say, where is your father? And so we can only thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we can only thank you and praise you that you have saved us through the work of Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.